This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is valued. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real Life Christian Church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. This is really important. God established three institutions. He established church, he established government, he established family. He established church in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples. He established government, read Romans 13. He established family in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and things like that. In Genesis 2, 24, where he said, um, the two of you shall now become one flesh. Church, government, and family. And I'll tell you something, folks, the greatest of these, the most important of these is family by far. And you say, well, how can the family be more important than the church? Because in the family that God wants you to learn his word, it's in the family that God wants you to learn the truth about Jesus Christ. And the church just reinforces that. We're just a reinforcer. That's something that should be learned in the home. Same deal with country or government. You know, we should learn respect for authority. We should learn citizenship and good citizenship in the home, in the context of the family. And then the church and other agencies like the school just support that. Family is the number one institution of all institutions. He created marriage. I said this last week. God created marriage. It was all his idea. He gave us wonderful bodies to reproduce and have children. That's family. And then God gave us his word. And he told us exactly how family should function. And we function best according to his plan in his word. And I want to look at Jesus' family today. And Jesus had kind of a dysfunctional family. Jesus himself was not dysfunctional. He was a perfect person, but his family was kind of dysfunctional. And we're going to look at three parts of scripture, what I call three vignettes or short little dramas in his life. His family had issues and these issues needed to be worked out in the family. And all that begins in the family. That's why I call this message. It begins in the family. The family is foundational. What you take out into the world, what you take out into the rest of your life, folks, it begins in the family. That's where it all starts. So let's look at the first, the first scripture, the first vignette in Jesus' life. And here's what's going on. And this is in John chapter 7, but Jesus is, um, well, he grew up in Galilee, the northern part of the land of the Jews. And so we'd call that up north. So he grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee, and at 30 years old, he leaves home. He's baptized by John. He begins his public ministry. He's just smoking, baby, I'll tell you. He's doing miracles, and he's preaching and teaching with all kind of authority, and he heals disease. Healed, I, tell you the, I, I tell you the one that got him into more trouble than anything else. He healed this guy at the Bethesda pool who'd been paralyzed 30-some years. 
And he, and he did it on the Sabbath day. And he said, it's okay to work on the Sabbath and show mercy. And man, that got him a lot of hot water. He did things like um, change water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish and fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And Jesus was the buzzword in that day and age. He was the real buzzword. Okay, so he's preaching and teaching. And he goes back north to Galilee, to Nazareth. And he stays with his mom and his brothers. And the Bible mentions that he has four brothers in Matthew 13. And this is verse 55. The people said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? So obviously his dad, Joseph, was dead. And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? And we're going to come back to this because it says they all took offense at him. So we're going to come back to this. So that was boyhood home. Now, down south in Jerusalem, southern part of the land of Jews, they had this big festival going on called the Feast of the Tabernacles, and his brothers were going to go to that, and he said, and they said, are you going to the Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem? And it wasn't that they asked him, it's how they asked him. Let me read you from verse 2, John chapter 7. When the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Jerusalem or go to Judea so that your disciples, meaning his followers, may see the miracles you do. Verse 4, nobody wants to become a public figure who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing all these things, go show yourself off to the world. And even his own brothers didn't believe it. Man, can you see the sarcasm in that? That's his family. They didn't believe in him yet. I mean, Jesus' dad had died. He was the oldest. He took over the family business. He helped his mom raise all these other kids. And then he goes out and makes a big splash. And what does his brother say in so many words? You're getting all the attention. You're no better than us. Why aren't we getting the attention? And stuff like that. And what you see going on here is envy. And I want to park on envy for a little bit. Because this is kind of personal to me. And I've said this before too, but this is the ugliest sin there is. That's the sin I dislike in myself more than any other sin. But really, I don't get jealous of other people's cars or money or clothes or positions, stuff like that. You know what I got? I use, and I listen, I work through this, man. And this was a tough process working through this. But I would see other churches that were so successful and doing so many great things for the kingdom of God. And that would make me jealous. And then I'd rationalize it. You know, I see people were growing in the word of God, man. They were bringing in the crowds. And I'd rationalize it and say, hey, I got so many days in life to live. I just got so many years. And I want to do as much as I can for the kingdom of God in a year. And I, and I rationalized it and made the envy good. And envy is never good. Never. There's no such thing as good envy. Because God tells us clearly in Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's your memory passage for today. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's really kind of tough, eh, folks, to rejoice with somebody who gets promoted and you're still waiting. I mean, could you guys rejoice if your girlfriend, who hung out with you just about every weekend, finds somebody else, and you love that relationship, you love that non-committed relationship, you hang out on the weekends, you got someone to go out to dinner with, so on and so forth. And she finds a guy who's interested in her for the future, a Christian man. And you're goodbye. Could you rejoice with that guy? Seriously. Or other people can take all this time off of work and they can afford to see some pretty nice places. And you say, I can't get that time off. I can't afford to see that place. And see, that's right where Jesus' brothers were. Envy makes us bitter. Boy, I hate that word bitter. I even hate the sound of that word bitter. 
Jealousy resents other people's blessings. It's you really saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. You blessed the wrong person. Jealousy says, I got the short end of the stick of life. And when that happens, man, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. There's ways to handle that. You know what I did? You know, I used to do this years ago. I would sit there near the back of the church, and I would just gaze at the cross. I would just sit there and gaze at the cross and think about what Jesus Christ did for me. Or maybe just sit down and read Matthew 27 or Luke 23 or John 19 or Mark 14. And look what Jesus Christ suffered for you guys. And just dwell on that. Dwell on that. See, his brother should have said, Jesus, you're you're making us proud. You're helping people. You're teaching them truth, man. They should have hugged him and said, we love you, man. I can tell you the right stuff to fight jealousy. The thing you got to think about is this. You know, God has a plan for you, a specific plan for you. And he gave you gifts that he gave to nobody else. Now, he may have given other people the same gift as you, and he may give it to them in greater proportion, and he may bless it more. He gave you gifts. It made you a unique person. You've got to thank God for who you are, not compare yourself to all these other people. But the most important thing I can do, man, when something like that happens, a sin like that or any sin, is pray. I've got to pray. If you're jealous, man, you've got to pray so hard. You've got to fold your hands real tight. Shut your eyes real tight. Concentrate on God and say, this sin is so ugly. I hate it in me. Give me the grace of the Holy Spirit to think differently, to see life differently, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Jealousy attaches itself to your insides, man. I tell you, it just, it just clings there, and it's a major heart transformation to get rid of it. It permeates your heart, your mind, your attitude, and it takes something supernatural. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can do that. And this really blessed me, too. The family is together for dinner. I call it talk time. First, you thank God for providing the food. I pray that you do that. And then you go around the table, you know, and maybe you say something like this, that car almost hit me today, and it didn't. God's angels were with me. And then people start talking about what happened in their day, and you, mom and dad, start pointing out, you start pointing out, you know, that was God, that was God, that was God, that was God. And people are getting the impression, (laughs) God is in my life. And they see you, they see you content. They see you choose not to shop, just to shop. They hear you say, we don't need this. The one we have is fine. They hear you call somebody on the phone who had something really good that happened to them, and it didn't happen to you, and they hear you say, hey, man, I'm happy for you. Love the way God blessed you. And that's affecting hearts and lives. They see you take money off the top, right off the top for the Lord. And you're sacrificing and you're building eternity in these kids. And they hear mom and dad talk about belt tightening. They see you sacrifice. They hear you say, okay, I don't need to go to the gym and pay that kind of money. I'll, put, I'll get some weights and use them in our home and go for walks in the neighborhood and stuff like that and get my exercise that way. And those hearts and minds are shaped in the family. And those kids are going to be content, and they won't be jealous of other people. And they're going to learn to rejoice when they're blessed, when other people are blessed. And they're going to be secure in God's love, and won't always be comparing themselves with someone else who's done it better or has more. All that begins in the family. And then you can take it out in the world. 
But you're not going to learn that. Oh, yeah, you will learn it in church, but it's not as important as family. See, I'm not kidding you. Thanksgiving works in your personal life, too. Jesus gave thanks for five loaves and a couple of fish, and then he multiplied them all. Man, you start thanking God every day. You start thanking God every day for everything you can think of and just start telling your Father in heaven, I'm an unworthy sinner. Look how you blessed me. Look what I have in Jesus Christ. I have everything in him and name those blessings. Man, do that. Look what I have and name those blessings. And your heart will begin to change when you're salted with envy. Thank God. Here's another story or another vignette. And this isn't about Jesus' immediate family. This is about, well, you might say his, Naz- his Nazareth family, his community family, because he was preaching with authority, and he went back up to the village of Nazareth where he grew up, and he was in his, he was two years into his ministry, and the first thing he does when he gets to Nazareth is He goes into the synagogue. Now, remember, he is the local kid, and all these people knew him, and they all grew up with him. And he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, where he grew up, and he, excuse me, he began to preach with authority. What did he say? Because we're going to see how these people react to it. From knowing the word of God and trying to get into Jesus, maybe he said something like this in Matthew chapter 5. I mean, this kid, here's the kid who grew up in Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue and starts preaching. Verse 43 in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, there's authority. You've heard the old rabbis preach, you know, you can hate your enemies as long as you love your neighbors. But Jesus says, I'm turning that around. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder how they like that. I'm looking at Matthew 16. Maybe he said something like this to those hometown folk. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, how would you take this if a hometown kid started preaching this? If anybody would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think the thing that offended them the most, maybe John chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, because here he said he was the son of God. This Nazareth kid said he was the son of God. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me. I grew up here and you know where I'm from, but I'm not here on my own. But he who sent me is true and you don't know him. But I know him because I came from the Father. And my Father is the one who sent me. He's saying, I'm God. I came from heaven. Now these people are getting a little myth, man. They're saying, he grew up here. I knew Jesus when he was a little kid. I knew his dad, Joseph. I knew his brothers. He used to play dolls with his sisters. I'm back in Matthew 13. Look how they reacted. Coming to his hometown, this is verse 54. He began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. And they said, where did this guy get this wisdom and all these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where where did this man get all these things? And what did they do? What did they do? They took offense at him. These town people had grown up with him. 
His teaching, backed up by his life, was an offense. And that's the whole principle here, guys. I tell you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, your personal faith in Jesus Christ, could very well be an offense to people. The gospel is an offense. We'll look at that in just a minute. But I, I, I wrote this and I thought about this couple. And this is a lot of years ago. But this thing sticks in my mind. Their name were Gail and George. George worked at Comerica and he was a big deal vice president. And he would go to all these Comerica parties. And since then, I believe they've moved to Dallas with Comerica. But Gail was very, very attractive. And she'd go to these parties with George and she'd, you know, stand there, would smoke, hold a cigarette. And she would drink and she would swing her body just the right way and she would flirt. And George liked that. He liked that. He liked to show off his wife. And they had a little girl, and they started bringing that little girl to the school. The church had a big school. And then she got involved with praying with moms. And then she got involved in mom's Bible studies. And all of a sudden, all these parties and all this stuff, she didn't care too much about that. And she was changing on the inside. Then they brought the girl to church. And George began saying, you're changing. I'm not sure I like all these changes in you. And then Cain, you might say, the straw that broke the camel's back. Gail wanted to send the kids to our school. And George kind of erupted and said, I, you are so religious, I liked you the way you were. And I don't want my daughter wasting time studying religion during class time. Now get this, when she could be learning something that's going to help her in this life. So we sat down. I remember this. And we talked about 1 Peter, and i got to read this to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. That means your unsaved husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Okay? And when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes and all that stuff. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And Gail started doing that. And she started living that. And she started practicing that. And yeah, she would go to the parties, but she quit smoking. She wouldn't drink. She wore modest clothes and she wouldn't flirt. And I'm going to make this long story short. Ultimately, 1 Peter 3 came home. George saw the changes in his life, saw the changes in his daughter, saw the good things that were happening. It took a long time. It was a long process, but he changed too. And I can remember the day he received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And that was a pretty big church. We had a big school and lots of salaries to pay and lots of bills. And he took over the finances and he really blessed us in a lot of ways. But the whole point, the whole point of this whole story is this. Non-believers, just like those guys sitting in that synagogue in Nazareth, non-believers are going to be offended by the righteous life of a believer. And here's one reason why. Because your strength of character, your strength of character will magnify their weakness. And they're going to be saying, I should be like that, but I'm too weak to be like that. And I don't want to give up what I'm holding on to. And so your strength to do that and give all that stuff up, that just magnifies that weakness. And they're going to distance themselves from you. Romans 9.33 says the gospel is an offense. Galatians 5, this is verse 11. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, and he wasn't. I'm not preaching circumcision, I'm preaching the cross. He says, 
If I were preaching circumcision, if I would preach what these people want to hear, I wouldn't be persecuted, but I'm preaching the cross, and the cross is an offense. And so Paul's being persecuted. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished if I would preach circumcision. Anyway, the cross of Jesus Christ is an offense. The gospel itself is an offense. And here's why. Because the Father offers us in his son, Jesus Christ, the free gift of salvation. So you're offering somebody the free gift of salvation. You're telling them salvation is free. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn it. You don't, have to, you don't deserve it. See, and what's going to happen, man? You're just, you're, you're just challenging those people's pride. They're proud people. They don't want to take a gift. They want to help Jesus Christ out with their works. And you tell them it's, it's a gift. It's all grace. And, and you don't deserve it. In a sense, you're lost forever unless you receive the gift. That is the gospel, and that is an offense. That simple, beautiful truth is such an offense to proud people. If you're a believer and you're living the gospel, you're an offense. The people listened to Jesus and knew, what he, and, and knew he stood behind what he spoke, like loving your enemies and stuff like that. And they were saying, that's where I should be. I know I should be like that, and I'm not. And just your very life and your strength is convicting me. And that's going to be an offense to people. And you may have to stand alone sometimes. And more and more, Christian people will stand alone. More and more, if you're serious about living your faith, people are going to distance themselves from you. And to learn to stand alone, and here we come back to the central issue here, to learn to stand alone happens in the family. The family is the basic unit. It's in the home you teach that real security is in your relationship to Jesus Christ. In the family, you learn that it really is better to obey God rather than men. And that's Acts 5.31. In the family, mom and dad deliberately make that home a haven and a refuge from the world where Jesus Christ reigns, where he is king. That happens in the family. If that doesn't happen in the family, it's not going to happen out there where he is king. And you enjoy each other and you sacrifice for each other. And you may have to stand alone, but that family should be a little taste of heaven and there should be real security and real strength in that family. Blessed in the family is the family that loves being together. And you don't sign your kids up for every event so you can be together. And if your kids aren't in all this stuff, so be it, because family is much more important than all this stuff they could be in. And you love being together. You enjoy each other. And that's where you build the strength that offends the world. It all be, don't you see? It all begins in the family. I want to look at Jesus' family. Matthew chapter 12. This is the end of Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And he said, who is my mom and my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of the Father in heaven, that's my sister and that's my brother, see. His mom and dad, or his brothers and his sisters and his mom were standing outside to get him out of there because of the stuff he was saying. Because he said in verse 8 of Matthew 12, he said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And Sabbath was so sacred to those religious Jews, man. And he said, I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. Then you get to verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12, and he says, your religious leaders that you guys respect so much, they're going to take me and they're going to turn me over to the Romans. They're going to kill me. They're religious leaders. That's strike two. 
And then came strike three. He said in Matthew 12, 41, the Gentiles would be in heaven before the religious Jews. They misunderstood everything he said. And misunderstanding happens in every family. His family had no idea of what he was trying to get across. They didn't understand him. They didn't understand the truth he was saying. And they just needed to sit down and talk to him. There's a great story in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus' family was his disciples. And two of his disciples bring their mom, James and John, and make the mom the front person. The front person mom says, we'd like our two kids to be number one and two when you set up your kingdom, see? And the other disciples, they become real upset with that man. They become very indignant and said, why shouldn't we be number one and two in his kingdom? Why you guys? Now look what Jesus did. Jesus called them together and said, this is his family. And there's some tension there. And what does he do in his family? Where do we learn communication? Where do we learn understanding? He calls his family of disciples together and he says, guys, look, this is how it is. And there was venting of feelings and there was closure, but it was good. Who do you need to talk to in your own life? Your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your child. Well, listen, it's in the family. See, my whole point, I hope you're getting this coming through. This all begins in the family, guys. You've got to invest yourself. If Jesus Christ is at the center of your personal life and at the center of your home, you may not have all the material things that some other people have, but you will have a strong, very blessed family because Christ will control your home. And it's only in that control of Jesus Christ that the family learns to die to self. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.